to Standout Medical Careers, the series of conversations with doctors about all things medical career. I'm Anita Fletcher. In today's episode, we meet Dr. Antonio DiDio. Antonio describes himself as a medical doctor, volunteer and advocate for the vulnerable. Just before we hear about Antonio's motivations and achievements, I need to tell you that if you want notifications of when I release a new episode, or if you want to get a free checklist to help you deliver a strong interview performance, go to the Standout Medical Careers website and sign up for my newsletter, standoutmedicalcareers.com.au. Dr. Antonio DiDio is a practicing clinician with over 30 years experience combined with ongoing service through several significant federal and state medical policy roles, providing outcomes to improve the well-being of Australians. Antonio further serves the community in health policy leadership roles, bringing extensive clinical stewardship and governance experience to continue a lifelong drive to improve health outcomes for all. His latest new role is with the Professional Services Review in Canberra. With a long-held commitment to train and mentor others, Antonio has actively taught junior and senior doctors in clinical and professional contexts. He has also provided 24-7 counselling services for health practitioners in psychological need over two decades. As a partner in a busy, successful medical practice, Antonio combines clinical work with numerous voluntary roles to provide better outcomes in areas of public policy and to the most vulnerable members of our community. Some of his many achievements include the establishment of a free clinic for Indigenous children to address immediate need while on a lengthy public waiting list and holding the position of Chairperson International Health Assessment Panel under Medivac legislation 2019, assessing claims of refugees from Manus Island and Nauru. Hi, Antonio. Thanks for taking the time to chat today. How are you going? Really well. Thanks, Anita. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, well, it's always a pleasure to see you and hear about your amazing feats uh, within your clinical roles and, and other activities that I know you're doing. Um, so before we get into your um, very rich career background, I'd love to hear about your current role and what the, that entails. So what is the Professional Services Review and what does a day in the life working for the PSR look like? Uh, the PSR or Professional Services Review is a, 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 an agency of government, um, which it, it's actually one of the very small agencies and it's uh, part of the Department of Health. And it assesses um, uh, potential inappropriate uses of Medicare funding. So generally it looks at uh, health practitioners, doctors and many others who may... Um, or may not have billed Medicare inappropriately. And so it's it's a regulatory agency which has a, a lot of um, lovely uh, people working in it, uh, mostly lawyers, um, but um, traditionally since it started, it's um, been led by a doctor. Mm-hmm. Okay, wonderful. Uh, my role is, is not um, 
the director of the agency, um, although I have been for the last month, but I'm her deputy in that role. Right, okay. So, so what does a typical day look like for you there? Well, um, I, I work at the agency uh, the equivalent of two and a half days a week, and um, generally I will assess um, the clinical records of medical practitioners who have been brought to the attention of the agency by Medicare. The agency only gets referrals from Medicare, not from any other source. And mm -hmm. Medicare has its own investigators which uh, review practice of doctors, nurses, chiropractors, dentists, you name it. And generally, the vast majority of times, Medicare is satisfied that uh, practice is appropriate or practice has been changed. But sometimes when they cannot be sure, they refer to us. So I review case notes, but also um, we talk to uh, doctors and health practitioners, legal representatives. Um, we occasionally uh, have um, uh, court actions and uh, we also have um, um, some reporting obligations, uh, whether it's to the medical boards or APRA or other agencies. So it's, it's quite a, um, a legal type role. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, it must be very interesting and a really nice balance to your other work as well. And uh, and I wonder, so do sometimes matters come to the agency's attention and the the medical practitioners state that they they're unaware of what the requirements are with Medicare. Yes, uh, Anita, that's true, and um, I've seen that firsthand uh, on many occasions in my other volunteer roles uh, where I do a lot of advocacy for doctors. In particular, um, uh, working with APRA at the moment in helping them to develop a, a suicide prevention strategy and a depression prevention strategy in the doctors that come up before them. Because whether it's APRA or the medical board or, or any regulatory agency for a doctor to appear before them is uh, extremely stressful. Mm. It's you know vitally important to uh, protect the integrity of the system um, and to protect patients from inappropriate practice and inappropriate or unsafe conduct. Um, my life has been devoted to uh, looking after doctors mm. uh, and um, many of them become very, very anxious um, and unwell when they go through a regulatory experience and I'm very, very acutely aware that um, we need to support them as much as we can even when they're going through this process, even when they have finished the process and are found to have done the wrong thing. That's to me, that's not the end of anybody's life or career or profession. It's simply a supportive and educative process. Right, right. And uh, and that's what, why I was asking with Medicare as well, because I'm aware during my time at the AMA, there was uh, some development of some uh, Medicare uh, training modules created by um, the AMA's Dr. Poddle Learning, 
team and uh, and I thought that that you know apparently that was a, a hugely valuable resource so I'll give that a bit of a plug now in case there's anyone oh, listening yeah. that thinks oh yes I'm not too sure about how it works and I mean it must be incredibly uh, onerous to uh, get pe for people to get their heads around all of those requirements as well as managing everything else in their professional lives. Oh, Anita, you're so right um, and the AMA has um, advocated so passionately for improvement of the practitioner experience appearing before all regulatory bodies so that, in particular there's an annual uh, uh, meeting with the Medical Board of Australia and APRA um, and the and the AMA in improving that practitioner experience and I've been very fortunate to be a part of that every year mm. um, and the AMA is absolutely dedicated to ensuring that people get as, as fair a process as they possibly can when they appear before any regulator um, because it, it is extraordinary the numbers are unbelievable um, uh, only a very small number of people ever get referred to PSA in, on, in any given year. It's probably about 100 per year. But um, almost 7% of all practitioners, uh, medical practitioners in this country, got a, a notification at APRA last year. 7% right. of wow. all in one year. And 76% um, of all those people had no finding made against them. Right. Right. So they went through this phenomenal pain and stress and hurt and distress um, with no finding made. Mm. Uh, so we've worked closely with APRA and, and I can tell you that, um, you know, APRA, they're good people. Uh, there's, there's nobody there who deliberately sets out to make doctors miserable or unhappy. Right. Uh, Well-intentioned. Um, but um, we have campaigned very much for them to be better resourced so that they can deal with these issues in a as timely a fashion as possible because for many doctors even if they get the the most absolutely fair go they are very very sensitive that they they associate their personal well-being and their identity with being not just a doctor but being a good doctor and a good person so the process itself for a lot of people is is incredibly punitive mm. Yes, and as you mentioned before, very distressing. And and I wonder, so for people who may not be so familiar with the number of doctors in Australia, as a an approximate figure, what does that seven percent translate to? Is it about ten thousand? Well, it's probably people? about seven or eight percent of clinicians. Right. Um, and um, it was about three percent per annum for many years and then it was about five percent per annum for many probably about a decade and but in the last year and a half it's it's gone up uh, the number of notifications mm. the ama has worked um with APRA, uh in relation to trying to minimize the number of um trivial uh, uh or m malignant referrals or notifications uh, and, and also to have uh, the most streamlined triage system that they possibly can so that the very trivial um, notifications can be dismissed as quickly as possible um, and also uh, to be done uh, in, a, in a way and it happened to one of my colleagues and it was a fantastic outcome in a way where instead of the practitioner going through 12 months of hell 
they go through 12 minutes of anxiety where they actually get a letter from APRA saying a notification has been made against you. We thought it was on the minor scale. We've investigated it. We found that you've got nothing to answer. Have mm. a nice day. Great. And so, and so the practitioner has fundamentally zero uh, uh, minutes or months of that angst. And, and to their great credit, um, APRA have done that uh, with a certain proportion of the lower end of their notifications. Mm. Excellent. That's great to hear. And you mentioned that time frame. I want, you know, it's obviously that 18 months, two years has been a time when people's sensitivities have been heightened. And, uh, and I was going to ask you, um, because knowing what you've done as a supportive of doctors' health, um, what, what have you seen, um, that you think could be some critical measures in, in addition to this process, um, that doctors can take to ensure their work? well-being and, and their, I like to say, life-work balance rather than work-life balance. I'm a bit of an idealist there. But uh, and, and what else should be done um, to help doctors, particularly given these circumstances of the last two years? Well, the first two things I should say to preface any answer, Anita, is that firstly and foremost, what I've always been is a GP. I, I work Monday to Thursday in general. Mm. And secondly, I'm a monumental uh, hypocrite, as are so many middle-aged men. I do a pretty lousy job of looking after my own health. <laughs> um, yes. Um, and, um, you know, general practice has been really, oh, sorry, general practice has been really tough uh, in the last um, couple of years, tougher than usual. I mean, we had a decade of fundamentally no changes in Medicare rebates for consultations. Uh, and part of that decade was an absolute freeze. Uh, so incomes are pressured and eroded, costs kept going up and up, and then the stressors of COVID have been uh, extraordinary. Going to work, wearing PPE and a mask and glasses and not being able to see your computer screen and not being able to talk to your patients or hug somebody who's crying. Um, mm. Those things have made practice unbelievably difficult. You're working harder and harder, you're earning less and less. Um, so for many GPs, uh, it's been a, an emotional uh, struggle, a real challenge. And the calls to the Doctors' Health Advisory Service um, have increased slightly um, and um, their complexity has probably increased as well. Um, but it's hard. It's really hard working in medicine in Australia today. Um, and, you know, I, I, I certainly couldn't survive in my practice without my, my partners, um, uh, Ruchi and Jenny, uh, without whom, um, you know, our practice would fall apart in a week if I was running it. Um, you know, you need amazing colleagues to, to help and support each other um, or um, you need to change the way that you practice in order to survive. Um, and I mean survive emotionally. Mm. I never, ever, ever want to practice in a way that doesn't give of yourself. Uh, you know, uh, I never want to practice in a way where you don't really care about people and run the risk of being exhausted and burnt out and upset by sad things that happen to them. Uh, but 
Some people do because it's the only way that they can survive. I think it's a terrible way to practice, but I can understand why some people would do that. Mm. Okay. And and so in addition to your uh, more than 30 years uh, in general practice, uh, I know that your career consists of, of other things. And what motivated you to seek out leadership and, and policy-making opportunities in the early days of your career? Uh, well, I've been married for the same number of years and I've never had any authority in my own home. Uh, so I, I sort of externally. <laughs> um, no, no, I, I just love them. Um, um, my, my partner, Richard, says that I'm just a talker. Uh, so I'll, I'll, um, I'm getting interviewed on your behalf, you bugger. I'll call you back. Love you, boy. That was, that was Walter, said hello. Oh, good. Um, uh, so w what I love is the notion that um, you can turn up to work every day see a person one-on-one -on -one and help them. And that's what I saw with one of my greatest heroes, a bloke called um, Dr. Gann, who was the GP in the little town I grew up with, who looked after the whole town. You know, he put me to sleep when I had my tonsils out and pulled me out of my mum and he fixed my arm when I broke it playing footy. And, you know, he that's the guy I wanted to be. You, you see people one-on-one, -on -one and that's what general practice is about. Mm. But the other inspiration I had was a guy called Cactus, uh, who uh, every second year was the Shire president uh, of our town, and he influenced everybody right. by going to endless meetings and, you know, passing the collection plate around at church on a Sunday night and by dressing up as Santa Claus, I mean, if, or, and running the surf club. If there was... That man was involved in everything, and I guess that's what I like. So I like the, the idea that um, you can work with other good people and and exert influence in a big, bigger way. Uh, of course, the frustration about that is that often when you're dealing with government, you have to be extraordinarily patient and you have far more losses than wins. Um, so, But when I started doing it, I realised that um, um, you just meet lovely and like-minded people. Um, I think when you go into some other fields, you might meet people who are um, motivated uh, differently. But in, in medical politics, uh, just about everything you do is voluntary. And so you meet other people whose motivations are lovely and there's a 99% chance that they're going to be lovely people. And, and that's what I've certainly found. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what would you say are some of the highlights of those experiences working with state and federal government shaping policy? Are there any particular things that stand out to you? I, I think it was uh, the culmination of years and years of advocacy to show politicians that they were dealing with advocates who were not lobbying for their own personal gain. I mean, obviously, the AMA uh, tries to help support all of its many thousands of members with their conditions. But, you know, my, my labours have predominantly been in relation to um, 
uh, chairing the International Health Assessment Panel and uh, Treatment of Refugees, working on climate change, working on um, industrial issues for junior doctors um, and getting them remunerated appropriately, uh, uh, getting um, uh, an equivalent of a Royal Commission in our state to assess bullying and workplace culture and the health system. Um, those things are hard work and they're painful and you never get you never get thanked or rewarded for it, but um, you, you do change conditions for other people in the long term, and you, and, you know feel good about that and sleep better at night. But because mm -hmm. of the advocacy, developing a pattern year after year of doing the right thing for the right reason, politicians look at the AMA, and particularly during the 2020 pointy end of the crisis, and say, "What do you guys think?" And they still lean very heavily on our federal president, Omar. Um, uh, for advice and support and mobilising the support of uh, medical practitioners. So I, I think that what it's about relationship building and building of trust. Um, uh, politicians, it would seem, uh, go to two main groups. They go to groups who are powerful and frighten them and they go to groups who are benevolent and they know are doing the right thing for the right reason. And I like to think that we're in that second category. I would love to be powerful and scary, but I don't think we ever will be. Right, right. And and for for the doctors listening who would like to know more, and, and I appreciate your really nice and succinct overview of some of the different roles that are carried out within the AMA, because I think a lot of people aren't too sure about, you know, some of the projects that and the, the groups that are working within there. Um, what were some of the key roles that you've held working with the AMA that, that potentially anyone interested in taking up some positions and getting more involved in that advocacy side of things? Mm, um, well, uh, at the moment, the AMA, uh, the AMA has, is led by a board, the federal board, which I'm privileged to be on, and also the federal council, which I'm also on. Uh, it has um, eight federal and state presidents and until a few months ago I was a state president. Um, and it has half a dozen committees and I'm fortunate enough to have served or serve on all of them. So there's an ethics committee, um, a public health committee, a mental health committee, um, uh, an indigenous affairs task force, um, and a, a range of other subcommittees for people who have a passion uh, and, you know, seem to have a passion for all of them. Um, it's just, I love it. I really mm. do. And, and we have an amazing secretariat, which you know all about, who mm. actually do all the work. We talk and say, oh, wouldn't it be good if we did this and wouldn't it be good if we did that and uh, we should report to that um, minister and we should deliver these following things and we should write a very well thought out 22-page paper on that and then someone like you, Anita, um, does the well thought out 22-page paper that makes us look much smarter than we are. Oh, I, I don't know about that, but I know I, I certainly know there's some very strong teams around the country of, of people who, as you say, are incredibly dedicated 
to those roles and making improvements. And and one of the committees that I had some involvement with uh, in New South Wales and, and federal AMA was the Doctors in Training Committee. And uh, the enthusiasm... One of our strongest and largest committees. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they're, they're incredible. You know, they're really something to behold. And I think that's a wonderful entry point for any young doctors listening who'd like to, you know, think... If, who might be thinking about, well, how do I, I get into sort of some different activities and roles um, during my, my years in training to, to make, you know, even more of a difference and, and undertaking those sorts of things outside of their clinical work. So that's a really wonderful place for a lot of people to go to. You're and, absolutely uh, right, um, Anita. Our last... Uh, Quite a few of our most recent federal presidents, including our current one, Omar Khorshid, uh, started off in doctors in training student politics. Mm. I wish I'd done it at that age. Uh, I, I was um, I was uh, specialising in binge drinking at that time. Surely uh, <laughs> um, uh, not. Uh, but I, I, the the young people who do it, um, they. They are exposed to some amazing experiences, talking directly to government and to leaders, talking to the absolute tops of their profession. I mean, on Federal Council, for example, we have representatives from each of the college. Many of them are college presidents, um, mm. the state presidents. And the, and the doctors in training, uh, are, certainly in my experience, are treated absolutely uh, not just with patronising respect, but they are equals at the table at every single one of those meetings. And we learn more from them than they learn from us. And I think that the experiences that they have um, uh, in learning how to lead and actually being challenged and, and told, look, you know, we really want to hear what you say. What you've said is amazing. Um, we need you to lead this. We need you to help draft this policy. We need you to go back to your members all, whether they are med students or residents or registrars, manage you to come back to us and tell us what you think. And that actually puts them under a, a fascinating bit of pressure. Mm. And you see their confidence and their skills grow. And then you see them a couple of years down the track and you think, what on earth is this young doctor doing being so articulate and so brilliant? And you realise that they've actually been doing this for 10 years already. Um, and they, they're not just our future medical leaders, they are our future leaders full stop. Yes, yeah, I couldn't agree more, Antonio. So thank you for that. And uh, aside from your work in general practice, um, tell us about some of your and, and your policy development and, and some of these other many roles that you've undertaken. Could you tell us about some of your other professional area interests in the arenas in which you've been able to pursue those, so perhaps outside of the AMA? Um, yeah, uh, Anita, I, I do a few other things. Um, uh, again, you do one thing, you get interested, and then you move on to the next one. So, so you don't move on to the next one. Well, you're supposed to. I don't. I, I continue and do the next one, but keep doing mm. the previous one. So you end up with this bloody collection of jobs. But that's that's fine. Um, so I, I do. I started off doing the Medical Benevolent Association, which is. Um, uh, an organisation that um, for a century now collects donations from doctors and distributes it to doctors in financial distress. And that one I, I stopped doing when I left Sydney, but I still have a 
warm friendships with the people who run it. And that then led me to the Doctors' Health Advisory Service, which um, is a, the equivalent of a, a lifeline counselling service on an urgent basis, which then develops into a more uh, a more detailed uh, health provision. Uh, and that, um, that I've been doing that for 25 years and doing it in the ACT on my own for a long time. But I'm now developing a team in the ACT of people, including my, my friend who just called, uh, to take the calls. And the Doctors' Health Service is a federal board, which I'm privileged to serve on, uh, which distributes funds to the individual state advisory services. Um, mm. I also um, do a little bit of teaching, um, run a general practice uh, with my partners. Um, I, um, I love um, the uh, little micro practice that I have um, outside the window there in Parliament House where I get to see um, lots of interesting people who have a different set of um, medical problems. Um, and uh, I, um, once you get... Uh, old enough and fat enough you start sponsoring things so i i um, support the bell shakespeare company and i um support the australian yeah. crime writers and the australian comic book writers and that's all. right <laughs> yeah excellent so stuff, but it comes up I'll, it, it appears on your in your entry as a as a calendar invite you go oh yeah better get better get on with that too yes Great, thank you. Such a diverse range of interests, Antonio, and I find that a lot of um, doctors whose CVs I see are, are similar, and I think that's wonderful to demonstrate that it's such a rich career in so many ways. Um, but I appreciate you talking about um, the other services as well because I feel sometimes, and this particularly might be of interest to the non-medical uh, practitioner listeners that are listening in because um, I think that people in, in the general public can often think that, oh, why would, why would a doctor need any help or support? They've, they've kind of got it all sewn up. So when I started doing this work as a career coach and advisor, people said to me, why, why would they need help? So I, I wow. appreciate you talking through that. Um, that's, just, uh, that's a great observation, Anita. I have so many doctor patients and uh, they are spectacularly net so many of them um as i am at uh, trying to build a career of any kind uh, because mm. um, uh, it's we never get taught that sort of thing yeah but i, I wouldn't say spectacularly inept but uh Maybe you know just... not not aware of a, or across every single experience that's potentially out there when it comes to, to forging a career which you know not everybody sort of appreciates that but i think that also a lot of people don't appreciate the enormous amount of training uh, and and research and, and all of the other things that doctors need to do in order to progress through their careers. So that's uh, really helpful. And I'm sure for doctors listening as well, that if it increases awareness of those support organisations that are out there, then this conversation certainly been worth having. And um, so what about networking? You know, you mentioned you, you've, I know you're in Canberra and, and you spend a fair bit of time around Parliament House and, and various other places. Um, so networking must have been an important part of your career. What advice would you give to doctors starting out and wanting to build professional networks? Um, Anita, that's a, that's a good question. And I, and I think it's taken me ages 
uh, to figure out how I truly feel about that. But I've, I have now, and that is, and at the risk of sounding homespun and patronising, my my whole family, I'm originally from Sicily and country New South Wales, very, very matriarchal, very poor, and everything is based on relationships, absolutely everything. And so if your grandmother or your mum doesn't like what you're doing, you're not going to be doing it for very long. Um, and everything is based on who knows who. Now, it's it's difficult in some ways, uh, but it's beautiful, uh, mostly. And so um, in general practice, we have the extraordinary um, fortune uh, that 30, 40, 50 times a day, somebody's going to walk in the door and, you know, unless you're pretty cold, uh, you're going to say, what's your name? What do you do? And so many of my most wonderful friends uh, have met through general practice. Uh, but it doesn't have to be general practice. It can be any area, whether it's inside medicine or outside. Your clients are often the people that you mostly meet, and a lot of them turn out to just be lovely people. Mm -hmm. Second and most vitally important thing is that um, people you meet um, under no circumstances should you view them as a networking opportunity or an opportunity to benefit yourself. Mm. If, and again, this sounds like insincere guff that you read in an American self-help book, but I assure you it's truth and it's the underpinning of my life, Anita. When you meet someone, um, it's really important that you view the connection that you make with them really, really respectfully and in a way that is either mutually beneficial or entirely beneficial to the person that you meet, not mm -hmm. to you. And what's and it took me like 20 years to figure that out, not because I wasn't doing it, not, not because I was some kind of bad transactional person who only um, met people in order to use them. Quite the opposite. Some of my friends went into politics when we were very young and I... I was almost vaccinated against networking by the way that they behaved. You know that thousand yards there where a person's looking at you, but then within about 60 seconds, they're looking over your shoulder at the next person that they might kind of talk to because they're not interested in you anymore. Mm. So I have always um, tried to be interested in the other person and how I can help them. And it's only after years and years that you detect this pattern in your own life where you think, or people ask you, how come you know all those people and how come they call you? And it's, I like to think it's they call me because they're calling a friend and they are right. They are calling a friend. They're not, they're not calling me because I'm in that role or that role or that role. Mm. They're calling me because I've known them for years, we've been to the 40 together, we're friends and they'd like my advice because I happen to be in that role and know that person. Um, now, um, every, you know, 
murderous gangster organized criminal sees themselves in that way as well. I'm just a guy who helps a guy. Uh, but I see myself in that way and, and I hope I'm not deluded. I think if you uh, are only there to help people, occasionally, occasionally you will just be used all the time. But most of the time, um, uh, when people know that you're not interested in anything from them, um, then they learn a bit about uh, generosity and kindness as well. So I, I, I think the most important thing about networking, I'm sorry to be so verbose about it, but I feel really strongly about it. The most important thing about networking is don't do it for yourself. Mm. Somebody can tell if you're using them to climb a ladder. That's just gross. Yes. yes. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that that's the thing that comes across in, in interviews too is they can see, the panellists can see through any sort of signs of inauthenticity. And I think that people have built-in radars. So we can all detect when when we come across that person who's, who's only there in it for themselves or, you know, there for the wrong reasons. So... I, I think that's very good advice, Antonio. Thank you. And, you know, I ask that because a lot of doctors say to me they feel very uncomfortable uh, networking and they and they want to meet people. And I think, like you say, get to know people, show a genuine interest in them and see how you can work together. And, uh, and it goes from there. Very, very much so. And, uh, and finally, uh, is there a, another particular pearl of wisdom that you'd like to impart, especially in particular um, to the doctors in training who are listening? <laughs> well, um, I warned people at a speech I gave at Sydney Uni uh, last month, uh, beware middle-aged blokes pontificating at you. Um, but taking the risk of it, um, I think um, don't be the hypocrite that I am. Uh, don't um, don't work too much. Right. Don't don't skimp on your self care. Um, I really believe that uh, if you if you try to have I've never heard that expression life work balance. It's a nice one. If you can get a bit of that, well done. Um, I, I reckon the one thing that I've learned most in the last decade in my general practice work though is um, um, try as hard as you can it may not always be possible but try uh, to work with people that you respect and if possible love um, i work with um, my friends uh, and that has made a really difficult job much much easier mm. so, so if, if you're in a position where you're thinking, well, I've got to choose between this option and that option, um, and the, uh, they're, they're kind of similar, I would strongly suggest that um, you uh, look at the human beings that you'll be with rather than the nuts and bolts that you'll be doing, um, mm. particularly if it's a long-term commitment. Uh, try to ally yourself to people with uh, good values. Yeah. 
Wonderful. Well, what a great way to end, Antonio. And thank you very much for sharing some of your experiences um, this evening. And and how can listeners uh, learn more about you or possibly get in touch? Um, probably the easiest way is um, at my practice, um, uh, which is in Yarralumla ACT, uh, but also... Um, I'm on um, LinkedIn, which has an email address. So uh, um, I'm trying to think of what wisdom I might have to help people. It's very kind of you to think that people would benefit from talking to me, but they're very welcome to. Okay, great. Well, thanks again, Antonio. Very generous as always, and I look forward to catching up with you in person at some point soon. Thank you. Thanks, Anita. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Standout Medical Careers. If you like the episode or think it will be useful to someone else, please leave a review at podchaser.com. And if you've got any questions, let me know on LinkedIn at Standout Medical Careers. And remember, the better you articulate your story, the more you will stand out.